Welcome to Invested in Climate. Protecting the planet and decarbonizing the global economy is the challenge of our time. We all have a role to play, and the opportunity we face is unprecedented. Invested in Climate aims to help people do more to address climate change through their work, investments, lifestyle, and activism. I'm your host, Jason Rissman. I support a growing community of top climate and ESG leaders as the Chief Experience Officer at Nations Wealth, and I'm an advisor to the climate practice at IDEO. I'm also an investor and startup advisor, and when it comes to climate action, I know I'll be a lifelong learner always looking to have more impact. If you like what you hear, give us a good rating on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you found us. Sign up for updates and suggest ideas for future episodes at investedinclimate.com. Follow us on social, subscribe, and spread the word. Thanks for joining. As we stand on the precipice of what I hope to be a green revolution, that that opportunity is equitable and inclusive so that people and jobs and communities that otherwise don't have a chance are at this epicenter of what we're trying to do. And if we do this right, this climate crisis can be a tool for just development. Hey, everyone. It feels fitting to start 2024 talking about the big numbers, the big climate financing gaps we face and ways to fill them. We know that addressing the climate crisis requires trillions of dollars of investment. It'll need to come from government, from corporations, and from big finance. But there's another stakeholder with an important contribution to make. Private philanthropic foundations have important roles to play too, particularly in helping communities that might otherwise be left behind and in using philanthropic capital as a catalyst. By de-risking investments and taking concessionary returns, philanthropy can unlock hundreds of billions of dollars of needed investment. Today, we're joined by Elizabeth Yi, who oversees Rockefeller Foundation's global programs, including its recent $1 billion commitment to climate change. I've gotten to work with the Rockefeller Foundation in a variety of partnerships over the years, and I've been impressed by how they recognize their ability to take a lead and help accelerate entire fields. Of course, it's interesting to remember the foundation was initially funded by Standard Oil founder John D. Rockefeller, and that's something that Liz and I discuss in our conversation. In recent years, though, the foundation has demonstrated real commitment to climate leadership. And even in the weeks following this interview, the foundation announced that it will pursue a net zero emissions target for its $6 billion endowment, making it the largest private U.S. foundation to pursue a net zero endowment to date. Liz and I talk about the foundation's history in climate philanthropy, two different programs with billion-dollar-plus commitments, how it works to catalyze other funding, the intersections of energy, food, health, and economic opportunity and much, much more. Lots to learn and think about with this one. Here we go. Hello, Liz. Welcome to Invest in Climate. Hi, Jason. It's nice to be here with you. Thanks for inviting me to join you. Great to see you after so many years. The last time we spoke, I believe you were leading the 100 Resilient Cities program. So it's great to be reconnected with you and get to hear what you've been up to. To get us started, tell us a bit about your background and your history working on climate. 
Sure. And Jason, thank you for the job promotion. I was actually leading the resilience finance efforts and project implementation at 100 Resilient Cities, but you're exactly right. That is where we met. So it's nice to be back in touch with you. Since then, I have been at the Rockefeller Foundation proper. The Rockefeller Foundation had actually created 100 Resilient Cities as part of its 100 year anniversary celebration. Since that time, I've been busy at work at RF, really helping to scale our climate and resilience work. And my current role is to oversee all of our global programs, which are focused on food, clean energy, climate and health, and finance systems. And then in terms of your question on how I got involved in climate, it's a great question because I had to think for a second to figure out exactly when that was and how. And for me, it started with when I was actually at an investment bank. I was at Lehman Brothers at the time. It started with this utility scale renewable energy project I was working on. That was to try to hit the renewable portfolio standards that were just getting into place in many parts of the country. And what was interesting to me was my client at the time was looking to transition from fossil fuel generation, primarily gas-fired generation, and we were looking towards utility-scale solar and wind. And what I thought was really interesting at the time was when we were taking these deals to market, I felt that we weren't getting enough credit from the rating agencies in terms of the transaction structure and outcomes or the pricing advantage um, from the markets for the social and environmental benefits of what felt at the time was a chance to both make the world a cleaner and greener place and more equitable, but also really start to lay the seeds for the transition in energy. When I had the opportunity to join 100 Resilient Cities, it was a chance for me to say, how do I use the 20 plus years in banking and finance to apply it to a world that I hadn't worked in. I'd never worked in the nonprofit world. And what we were doing at the time was working to understand the resilience challenges of 100 cities in 48 different countries and understanding how the challenges of globalization, urbanization, and climate change all work together to impact people and community experiences in these cities, and then learning from them and supporting their journey on how to develop and implement resilience projects. That's my short career journey, but that's how I started working on climate, which started with a financial transaction years ago. And now you said you're at the Rockefeller Foundation proper. Tell us again, what is your current role? Jason, I'm the Executive Vice President of Programs at the Foundation, which means that I oversee all of our global programs. Fantastic. Liz, we're here to talk about a recent $1 billion commitment to climate that was announced by the Rockefeller Foundation. Before we dive into hearing the details of that commitment, let's set the stage and talk a bit about the Rockefeller Foundation. Of course, we should mention the Rockefeller family created its wealth in the oil industry in the late 1800s. The foundation, however, has been a leading voice, thought leader, and funder on a range of climate-related issues for some time now. If you can, Walk us through some of the key elements of the foundation's climate commitment prior to the recent billion-dollar program. Happy to. So the foundation, as you exactly said, Jason, was created in 1913 by John D. Rockefeller with the vision of supporting the well-being of humanity. When we were embarking on this climate strategy development, it felt right to look back at our history and understand what the foundation had done in environment, in climate since its inception. And we found a lot of 
different programs that the foundation had started, many of whom live on today. Our first grants to the environment were actually in about the 1950s. And one that I think is probably near and dear to your heart, Jason, was to a researcher, for example, named Jane Jacobs. And she was very focused on the design of urban environments and thinking about how do you bring both function and design together to support people and communities and create a very positive city environment. Fast forward to 2008, and the foundation created something called the Asian Cities Climate Change Resilience Network, short-term ACERN, since that's otherwise a mouthful. And that was about bringing attention and making sure that we actually elevated the climate change challenges and building resilience for otherwise vulnerable communities and people in Asia. And then came 100 Resilient Cities, which established the field of urban resilience. Prior to that, really hadn't been at the forefront. And the mission of 100RC, which is almost $200 million that the foundation put into this field, was thinking about how can we build a world that can adapt and thrive in the face of so many different dynamic shocks and stresses that come our way. The proud moment for me is that resilience has entered the vernacular of so many people around the world, and people are using that as a way to think about more equitable development and how we want to build our communities to both last and create opportunity for people. Thanks, Liz. I'm also aware that in 2020, the foundation divested from fossil fuels in its endowment, and you also invested and built a program called the Global Energy Alliance for People and Planet. Tell us about these initiatives. That's exactly right. Thanks, Jason. So we did divest in December 2020. I'm very proud of that fact, especially given where our foundation's resources came from. That was actually a further catalyst to thinking about how as a foundation we could really make a difference and ensure that we were putting people and communities at the center of what we needed to do to address the climate crisis. And that was the moment that we said, how do we actually look at energy as a tool to support people and economic opportunity? And that's when we launched in partnership with the IKEA Foundation and the Bezos Earth Fund, an organization called the Global Energy Alliance for People and Planet. GAP is about a billion and a half of philanthropic capital, multi-billions of dollars in additional leverage from the development finance institutions that's focused on supporting energy access and transition with the deep recognition that we need to ensure that people and opportunity are at the center of climate resilience development. GAP is now active in about 20 different countries today, and I'm proud to say that the team is focused on supporting and reducing greenhouse gas emissions, ensuring that jobs and livelihoods are created, and that the team is really focused on transitioning from fossil fuel emissions, ensuring that we're making connections and access opportunities for communities that don't otherwise have access to stable and clean, reliable energy, and ensuring that we're also creating job opportunities for people in those communities so that they can be part of this green revolution. Let's learn more about that billion and a half dollars. It's quite a substantial commitment and as a coalition effort surely took a ton of work. To what extent is that funding purely philanthropic or is it also intended to be catalytic in terms of bringing in other types of capital? The billion and a half dollars, Jason, is 
the concessional capital that the initial funders have pooled together. It is intended to be catalytic because the win is going to require us to be able to bring in capital from other areas of the market, whether that be more private capital, other development finance capital, to help accelerate the energy transition. Liz, let's dive now into the more recent billion-dollar commitment. It's well known that climate represents only about 2% of total philanthropy, and many argue that much more is needed. Rockefeller Foundation seems to agree. Prior to this investment, about 25% of your resources were focused on climate, and I believe this commitment brings that closer to 75%. Let's start with understanding why. Why make such a big commitment on climate? And why now? The work at 100RC was exactly the reason I got behind this important moment to say, how do we help vulnerable people ensure that they are able to adapt and thrive in the face of increasing climate shocks that they're facing? And as I mentioned at the top, Jason, our foundation has always focused on the well-being of humanity, and that's been unchanged since 1913. This felt like the absolute right moment to say, What do we need to do as a foundation to make sure that communities are able to thrive and set themselves up, recognizing that the climate is going to continue to change extreme heat, extreme weather events are going to change our life on the planet as we know it? My old boss used to say, never let a good crisis go to waste. And so this is a chance to also ensure that we make sure the latest innovations that reach people who otherwise aren't at the table, who otherwise don't have access, and that as we stand on the precipice of what I hope to be a green revolution, that that opportunity is equitable and inclusive so that people and jobs and communities that otherwise don't have a chance are at this epicenter of what we're trying to do. And if we do this right, this climate crisis can be a tool for just development. Thank you, Liz. Let's go deeper and really understand how the investment is broken down. So a billion dollars, what are the main pillars of the commitment? How will this investment be distributed across different climate priorities? And What are you thinking about first? So the main pillars of our commitment are building on the strengths of the institution that we've had for so long. So number one is clean energy. One of the challenges that we are trying to avert is that if we continue with business as usual, about 75% of global emissions in 2050 could come from the 81 countries that are considered energy poor today. And so Our job is to say, how do we empower the 3.6 billion people who currently live in energy poverty, the 800 million of that who are still completely in the dark, how do we get them to have clean energy? Because they need that to be able to access the modern economy and be part of society going forward. The second pillar of our commitment is around food and food systems. It's a really interesting dichotomy that we're facing that the food system that we have today fails to nourish over 3 billion people and at the same time produces a third of global greenhouse gas emissions. So we need to ensure that the system gives food that is good for people, that people have access to that good food, and that the planet recovers and is stronger as a result of the change in food systems. The third pillar that we're working on is health. 
this isn't so much a focus on greenhouse gas emissions because the health sector really accounts for only about 4% of global emissions, but it's the three plus billion people that are bearing significant impacts from climate change, significant health impacts from climate change. So whether that be infectious disease, heat, flood risk, our health systems need to be in a better position to prevent, predict, and detect and respond to these challenges, to these disease outbreaks that are otherwise caused by climate change. And then the last piece of it is none of this works without reshaping and rethinking how we deliver finance. Because as you said, very little philanthropic money is going to the space. And we need about $3 trillion of finance going in each year to communities that are otherwise being battered by climate. So one of the things that we're working on is how do we actually take this moment to build the financial system that unlocks the finance that we need and brings it to people who are counting on us that need it the most. Let's go deeper into that point and really help us understand the theory of change that you're operating under. It sounds like it's not just about filling resource gaps and getting money into the hands of organizations doing important work, but you're trying to be catalytic. You're trying to de-risk investments and help recruit other investors into the space. How does that work in practice? We spend a lot of time, Jason, learning and listening from our colleagues, from our grantees, from our other partners to really understand exactly, as you say, how can our resources be the most catalytic? And as a key part of this climate strategy, we didn't say we're only going to do mitigation or we're only going to do adaptation. What we're really focusing on is how do we identify and work with our grantees and our partners to understand and support people-centered solutions that are focused primarily on helping people improve and strengthen their access to opportunity based upon the science and evidence that we think has the most promise. So for example, whether that be a new battery storage system, whether that be a chance to say, how do we use wastewater surveillance to help identify when there could potentially be outbreaks in communities and move resources there so that an outbreak doesn't become a pandemic. Those are some of the things that we're looking at. How do we use regenerative farming, for example, to both bring both nutrition, but also better farmer equity and and income and opportunity and better landscapes together? So those are some of the ways that we're thinking about where and what we push forward. And so when we see those solutions and have others alongside of us who say, we're in, we're eager to uptake this, the private sector, governments, communities are key, we'll then make big bets. We'll then say, how do we actually scale other resources to create that replication behind those innovations, build those alliances, and really then track our and communicate our progress so that we know what success looks like. And by the way, Jason, also when we aren't succeeding and what the lessons are that we've learned, because the one thing I do know is we're running short on time to make sure that we both address the climate crisis and make sure that people are at the center of everything that we do. Liz, from your comments, two points jump out at me. One is the intersectional nature of climate. It's that climate isn't just about energy, but also health, food, many other things, which are really examples of how it's impacting everyday lives. This means that there are also intersectional solutions that can advance both climate as well as those human needs. The second point is the economic opportunity. 
that as food, health, and energy systems are transformed, it creates massive economic opportunities. But these opportunities need to be better understood and de-risked in certain ways. Liz, who do you hope really hears this message? Who are the types of partners that you need to come forward and to bring along and bring capital to invest in these systems and these solutions? Jason, if we could get everyone together, I think (laughs) that would be an incredible outcome. Part of the reason of us taking a more solution-focused approach to this was to be able to crowd in the different types of capital that need to come together to be able to address these crises. What I hope our capital will do and where philanthropy is best is taking that first step and taking that risk on brand new ideas. That's where we can come in, proving those out and then getting other actors who have less risk tolerance, but who are eager for innovation and for outcomes for people and planet. I hope that we will see through the work that we're doing that we'll get governments on board to make policy changes, to funnel their budgets and resources in new and different ways that creates greater economic opportunity and equity, that we start seeing private sector uptaking those ideas and building new businesses and putting their money against that, whether that be traditional industry, or whether that be the financial institutions being able to say, you've de-risked this enough that we can actually bring finance to the table in a much more significant way. So bringing along all of those resources to help solve and put effort and resourcing behind these solutions that our communities and that people are asking for to address these crises. One of the things that I've really appreciated about working with the Rockefeller Foundation is your history in influencing ideas and narratives. Many people don't know that the term impact investing was actually coined by the Rockefeller Foundation. The foundation also played a key role in elevating the concept of resilience, as you described, and really helped build out that space, food waste and food systems as well. With this new commitment, are you trying to influence thinking in some way and help build a new field as well? I hope so, Jason. That would be part of it because I think where we've gotten tripped up sometimes or divided sometimes as a community is that you hear some people say, only mitigation, only adaptation. What we're saying is that the only way to solve this crisis is to understand what people need and work with communities to build those solutions, to help elevate their access to opportunity. I hope that we will look and say, how can we actually use climate for development that puts people at the center of it and that we're working to both address and avert greenhouse gas emissions, as well as bring alongside opportunities for development that uplift people and access to improvements in their lives and livelihoods. Liz, you recently announced 25 grantees to improve global food and health security, curb coal, increase solar energy access, and more. Help us understand at a high level how these initial grantees were selected and what you initially prioritized and and why. Happy to. So this was something that we supported out of a set of resources called the Climate Exploration Fund, and that was designed intentionally to help us learn and help us engage with communities and actors that weren't in our typical range of knowledge or expertise. And so what we've tried to do here is invest in a broad range of adjacent projects that will help us inform our future work, test some hypotheses that we may have as it relates to a very people-focused climate 
transition and identify these new partners. And we've spent the last year listening to experts in the space, learning about what climate change is, how it will continue to affect people that we serve. And we've learned a lot in that time, but we still have a lot left to do. And so what we were trying to do and what we'll continue to do in this space is understand really five different things. First is as we look at this range of solutions, how relevant are they to our target communities? That is making sure that we're listening to communities, learning from them, understanding what those challenges are so that they're part of the design and implementation process. The second is making sure that the idea is effective at bringing about the desired outcomes and impacts that we set forth against the bigger challenges, the four big challenges that I mentioned. The third is that the opportunity for replication and scale is there so that we start in community, but we're setting ourselves up to really have transformative impact over a broader range of actors than just where we start this grant. And then making sure that our resources are additional, that we're really adding value and catalytic capital in a way where others otherwise wouldn't. And then the last, which is related to that a bit, Jason, is how do we actually mobilize capital from public, private, or other philanthropic sources to make sure that we're sustaining the work once the foundation has stepped back? All right. Without further ado, let's dive in and hear about some of the grantees. We don't have time to hear about them all, so why don't we do this? I'll pick one that caught my eye, and I'll let you pick two others. Sound good? Sounds great. All right. So this is really hard because so much did catch my eye, but let's go with Climate Mayors, C40, and Urban Sustainability Directors Network. Your support is helping support mayors and their staff expand their leadership role in the implementation of the Inflation Reduction Act. And this caught my eye because it really does seem to be catalytic. The IRA offers many billions of dollars, but requires action at a local level for that funding to reach its intended purpose. Tell us about the grants and how you believe it'll help. This is a good one. I'm glad you picked it, Jason, because you know cities are near and dear to my heart. If you actually look at the IRA in and of itself, there's a lot of spaghetti. It is not very clear how all the noodles connect, and it is very, very complicated for communities to access resources easily. It is such a huge opportunity. I've seen something that said it's about $300 billion over a decade. The need to actually access these resources to make sure that communities are on the forefront and are setting themselves up for a bright and green climate future just felt too important to not dive into. And so our grant here, which will be executed by a few organizations, Climate Mayors, C40, Urban Sustainability Directors Network, and their communities will help mayors and their team expand their leadership role on the ground in the implementation of the Inflation Reduction Act so that they are on the front lines and we can make sure that federal funding actually reaches the places that need it most. Adjacent to this, Jason, is something that we help stand up in partnership with about a dozen other philanthropies called the Invest in Our Future Initiative. This grant, as well as the Invest in Our Future Initiative, we hope will work together to make sure that we're catalyzing the public and private investments in clean energy and climate solutions that improve opportunity in the underserved communities, support their leaders, and enable their communities to access these resources. Liz, you mentioned the Invest in Our Futures initiative, which sounded really interesting. Would you mind telling us more? 
Sure. So the Invest in Our Future initiative was we created several months back in partnership with about a dozen other philanthropies. It is focused on supporting communities as well to access these initiatives and support a green transition. And I'm excited about it because of the donor collaboration amongst us. We have a chance to learn and partner together to support indigenous communities, to support communities in red and blue and purple states to be able to access those IRA dollars to build a bright future going forward. And so stay tuned for more work coming out of that. I'm also excited because one of the things that RF is doing to support the Invest in Our Future initiative is helping incubate it on our public charity platform called RF Catalytic Capital. And so we're able to bring the relationships and knowledge of the foundation in partnership with all of our other partner institutions to help advance that work going forward. Fantastic. Well, thanks, Liz. Your turn. Sorry to make you pick among so many exciting initiatives. Tell us about a couple that you think really reflect the unique role that Rockefeller is playing. I'd say there's so many different ones here. And by the way, Jason, this is just one small sample of a myriad of other climate-related grants that the foundation is moving. This is our front line of how do we then push the frontier forward, but also bring it home to us so that we're continuing to advance the field of people-focused climate solutions. One area that I think is worth elevating here is something that I'm very excited about is the field of climate and health. Coming up at COP28, we actually have the first health day ever at the climate conference. And part of the work that we're trying to do is help support the field and its creation and help understand where the opportunities are to lean in. And we've been working with a number of other different philanthropic and private sector partners on it. So I just wanted to highlight two grants in this area that we've done. One is to the Makarere University School of Public Health in Uganda to help support the development of the Republic's first vulnerability and adaptation assessment so that the country can understand where the health system vulnerabilities are most acute to the risks of climate change and then build a national adaptation plan so that government and partners can put in place better health system resilience to ensure that the country and its people are more resilient to climate change. We've done something similar as well in partnership with another university called the University of the West Indies. And in that instance, supporting the development of a study to help us and the community understand what are the impacts of climate change on health, in particular, looking at the quantification and cost of inaction so that there is a stronger case for investments in health to address the otherwise challenges that would come from climate change. Thank you so much, Liz. You know, a billion dollars is an enormous commitment, and I'm sure that you have much in place to be able to track your progress and really get a sense of whether or not you're successful. Give us a sense, what does success look like for the foundation in making such a big commitment to voting so much of its resources towards climate in this particular moment? So success looks like to me where people don't have access to opportunity in a way that works for them, that we've changed the tide and that they are looking at a bright and green future. More specifically for the foundation, we're really measuring our progress around three specific pillars. One is that we are reducing greenhouse gas emissions and building and supporting biodiversity and environmental outcomes that give us a planet that we are excited to continue to live on and that we actually can. 
The second is around opportunities for people. And we're looking at how do we make sure that our dollars continue to catalyze the innovations and opportunities that bring that home to people that otherwise might not be at the table, might otherwise be left behind. And then the third is leverage. We continue to talk about money and finance. And in total, the world has really only marshaled about 16% of the financing necessary to reverse that climate crisis with countries and regions in Africa, in the Middle East and Asia having the largest unmet needs. And so I hope that our resources go to drive in more investment into the space that we so urgently need to get the outcomes that we have to have. For other investors or other foundations, what's the message you'd like to convey? Climate is going to affect all of us. It is in the most immediate game. It is no longer just a long-term game. And so as you think about your day-to-day work, please consider how climate has affected your everyday and how you want to leave a world for your children and your grandchildren. In philanthropy, we have the incredible fortune to be in the business of people. We can focus on how do we elevate opportunity. I hope that others will join that. I had the privilege of facilitating a conversation with an incredible advocate named Aisha Siddiqua. And one of the things that she said to me on that panel that has stuck with me for the past several months since we had this discussion is she said, look, every one of us will have someone that we love on this planet in 2050. And it's all about the world that we want to leave for them. And so I hope that more people will look at our model. We're not going to get it all right, Jason, but we are going to try because we need to be able to help support communities and build a world that our children and our grandchildren and future generations can thrive in. Liz, working at the billion dollar plus level, you have a really interesting perspective on the type of action and investment that needs to get behind climate. And I'm curious, as a point to leave off on, Are you hopeful despite the financing gaps we face? Every day I'm hopeful, Jason. I mean, in the business of people, you always have to be optimistic. And so my glass is always half full because I see new entrants and new people making commitments. I see the innovations and the opportunities that are coming into this space. And so I am optimistic that people and that we as a society will continue to make good decisions. So I know there are days that are very hard, but I also think the recognition that we all are trying to do good by each other is key to the work going forward. Liz, thank you so much for being with us today. Best of luck with everything. It's been great to see you. Thanks, Jason. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Invested in Climate. Please remember to rate us on Apple, Spotify, or Google. Find show notes, sign up for updates, get in touch, and visualize your climate action at investedinclimate.com. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute financial, accounting, or legal advice. Thanks again.